Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast. This afternoon, it's my great pleasure, after a lot of plotting and planning, to finally get Eduardo Nierhut onto the podcast. Uh, Eduardo spent five years at Mapillary, starting out as an intern, and progressing to being their community manager and then strategic partnerships manager in the Asia Pacific region. Um, since Facebook acquired Mapillary, he's been the program manager for their XR Insight Maps Reality Labs. And uh, I haven't got a clue what that is, but I guess Eduardo will explain that to me in a minute. Um, he says about himself, I manage a team that develops data collection strategies, facilitates external partnerships in the open mapping space, coordinates between vendors and map editing teams, and informs the product roadmap. Our mapping work supports the base maps you see in the meta family of apps, as well as upcoming AR and VR products. Wow. What an exciting job you've got, Eduardo. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for uh, all your patience and great to finally be chatting with you. Yes, it is very exciting. I've had a lot of fun, which is why I'm still involved in this space. It's just a right. fun ride. So before we get on to what you've been doing at Mapillary and then at Facebook Meta, I need to get the terminology right. Um, how did you get into all of this? What did you do as a student? Yeah, my background is actually quite different to most of my colleagues and a lot of the other people in geo, I don't have a geospatial background per se. I studied mostly economics related subjects. I did a Bachelor of International Business, which is a very broad degree. I did a bit of finance in that, a bit of logistics. And then at university um, for my master's, I did a master's of Asian studies looking at like foreign tech companies entering China. I was very fascinated by why they failed. But the reason this got to geospatial was actually that I was interested in startups and uh, I was looking in the in the Malmo region at different startups. And I've, I've for a long time had this interest in geospatial bubbling under the surface. I had an aunt that gave me a, a dawning Kindersley illustrated atlas as a child. And I was like absolutely fascinated by that, just looking at different countries and it had the map. And it would have a description of the country and some of them just seemed so distant and foreign to me as a, as a child growing up in Australia. So I think that really fostered an interest in geography, even if I didn't understand what geography and geospatial was back then. And then my interest in history, international relations, economics, those kind of subjects then connected with, with geography. So skipping forward to when I went to Sweden to do my master's, I was looking to, to work in startups and I was really fascinated by by the tech scene there and just how much talent there was in southern Sweden. I made a list of companies in the area that I thought looked interesting and Mathlory was top of that list. They were talking about capturing the world, a street view for the world using smartphones and that it was a great time. Smartphones had good cameras now, we can capture the world and it just you know, as I mentioned, I was interested in countries, I was interested in travel, I was interested in tech. It seemed to combine a lot of these interests. That really turned what was 
uh, maybe a passion bubbling under the surface into a professional pursuit. Fantastic. You know, you've just, you triggered a thought for me, Eduardo, because uh, we share something that we both started out as economists. Um, I never intended to go into technology. And in fact, I didn't, you know, I, I studied economics and then I, I worked in heavy industry for 20 years before literally stumbling into geo and thinking, wow, why haven't I been doing this all my life? So I get that, that passion that you have. So let's go to Mapillary. Um, and I know lots of people listening to this podcast will know what Mapillary is, but I think just describe in a little bit more detail the product that they built. Still building. Yeah, so the, the true, the vision that was there in 2013 when Mapillary started by four founders in southern Sweden is still true, and that's that using all sorts of devices, but initially smartphones, we can create street-level imagery around the world and use computer vision to derive map data. And so it's a very scalable way to build maps. We can build maps in places that maybe commercial entities had not cared about traditionally. That was a big part of Mapillary was maybe going where Google Street View hadn't gone and enabling anyone to do it themselves. But the idea is to, to help scale the collection of map data using computer vision, which as we're seeing more and more is this incredibly powerful technology to, to, uh, to derive data from an image. And so just going on from that, um, the guys who started it, why did they do this? I mean, was it, did they have a business model or was it just a passion project? This was at the time when, yeah, smartphones were getting much Better. The cameras were, it was a time when you're starting to put your digital camera away and just keep your smartphone in your pocket where you didn't need your digital camera as much. And Jan Eric, the, the CEO and, the, and the, the, the original founder, he had a computer vision background and so was probably always thinking of ways in which computer vision could be applied. Identified this opportunity to have street-level imagery at scale using these phones that you had in your pocket and use computer vision to derive interesting information. So there were four founders. They had a great combination of skill sets. Two of them had more of a computer science database background and, and two had a, more of a computer vision background. And I think when you think about what Mapillary required in those early days, that was a pretty great combination because you had people who could scale databases and um, put all put all the infrastructure on the cloud and process all these images that are coming in to identify, to segment each pixel and identify things within them. Um, and then the computer vision side to obviously do that actual uh, segmentation and, and derive something interesting. So it was a good background. There wasn't a clear business model, I think. Um, it, was, it was venture capital backed in the early days. And so the business model is something that you figure out as you go along, but it emerged as that the real value is in the data. And so Mapillary, we were never charging for you know, going to the platform and, and accessing the imagery. It was about the data that you derive. And so our customers were people that are trying to get map data more efficiently, whether it's traffic signs or location of guardrails. And so the idea is you upload your own imagery or you access other people's imagery, and then you pay either by the API or via um, 
data set downloads to get access to to GeoJSON files for the information. Clever, right. And let's get some sense of the scale of this because it got pretty massive, didn't it? How many images? Yeah, I think the latest count was a couple of a couple of billions. So a lot How of many? images. Say that again. Just say that like, again in case. People yeah, with, with with a B, with a B, with a, a B, a couple of billion. Yeah, so huge amount That's a shitload. Of, of images. It is a shitload of images. It's it's pretty cool. Just when you look at the world map, this was something I spent you know many years doing. Is it's so much fun when you're working at Mapillary to just zoom in onto somewhere in the world. And just look at what images have been contributed, um, and it's that was only possible because of the crowdsource. Have people who who care about some sort of geospatial problem somewhere in the world. It's very easy for them to download Mapware on their Android or iPhone and get started. It was it's so cool to see all the all the places where imagery has been contributed. And how many people have contributed? About yeah, if we're talking about over the life of Mapware be tens of thousands of people. I think there's a core group of, you know, a few thousand people that are contributing. A bit a bit like OSM, I, I think a lot of these crowdsource communities you see the same dynamic where maybe you have ten to twenty percent of the people that contribute twenty plus percent of the data. A very similar dynamic with that. Um was it one of these things that was gamified where there was sort of competitions to capture the most photos or was it more altruistic? We did try to gamify it a bit. That was part of my role was trying to find different ways we could in, in excite users about data collection. So we tried many different things. Some were total fails. Some were more successful. One of the more successful ones was called Complete the Map. And that's where we would run campaigns where we would choose a particular city. One of the early ones was Berlin. And we would divide Berlin into different um like into a grid with different cells, squares. And we had a user interface where you could contribute images and then see how much of that particular square was green. And then we reward people for filling in the map, completing the map green. And, and that was a really successful way to get people thinking more strategically about how they capture. Often with OpenStreetMap and with MapLory, people just do what they're interested in doing. And that's, that's great. But if you try to build a complete map of an area, you sometimes need to be a bit more strategic about where you go and, and fill in the blanks. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think, uh, you know, that's what Hot did with the tasking manager effectively, isn't it? Say, you know, these are the areas that need working on. Let's get to it. Um, yeah, and then that's a great example because that, that was very much needed for yeah. Hot to be able to go into an area in a short period of time and completely map it. So we've tried similar things to that. I think one interesting difference between Tasking Manager and Mapillary is with, with a lot of the stuff that you see on the Tasking Manager, you don't need to be in that place to do the, the mapping. It's great if you are. It's great if you have that local knowledge. That's definitely a benefit, but it's not a prerequisite. Whereas Mapillary, you actually physically need to go out and, and go to that place. And that creates some interesting challenges when it comes to incentivizing people. Yeah. And I guess then, you know, you've got the, the demographics of the contributors is a major factor because you've got to have a smartphone and you've got to have some time and you're typically doing this in the area that you live in. Um, 
And if you're like me and you live in a well-mapped area, um, you run out of things to map. But I guess there's plenty to photograph. Um, so what was your role in all of this? I mean, what does a community manager mean in mapillary terms? Yeah, well, I actually started out as an intern, as you as you mentioned before, and I was doing everything from like we had these smartphone mounts that we would send to people so that they could have their phone in their car and take images as they drive. And so I'd do everything from putting those in a box, packaging the box, go to the post office and ship them out through to like going to conferences and talking about Mapware. So it was a pretty cool job while I was, I was studying at the time and I was, wow. I was doing those kind of things, talking to users, trying to solve their problems. If you've got a local government that's, hey, I want to capture street level imagery, how do I get started? Um, giving them some suggestions on how to get started. So I was doing all that kind of thing. And then as I got towards the end of my graduation, I started to move more into like, you know, working with the team to be more strategic about how you grow a community. So what does a community manager do? They have to work really closely with the community to understand what problems the community is trying to solve. I think it's important for them to be part of the community in a big way. Um, so I would spend a lot of time talking to our users, trying to understand what they care about in the OpenStreetMap world. Some cared about urban mobility, some cared about disaster risk reduction, some cared about, you know, they were actually working full-time in the industry and they were maybe trying to keep track of their traffic, traffic signs. So my job was to, to work with these people, understand what they're trying to do, give feedback to our product team so they can make our, our product better based upon how our users are using it. But then also come out with campaigns to, to excite people and get more people on the platform. And if we identify urban mobility as something that's important in France, try to see whether maybe some of the communities in Germany would care about that as well and introduce right. them. So there's a bit of, you know, product insights, a bit of growth. Um, and, uh, and those are two exciting areas. Right. And I'm guessing these community, the mapillary community overlap quite closely with the OpenStreetMap community. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap for sure. I would say yeah. that you yeah, had to put a number on it, maybe 70% of the community. Wow. Is okay. That was so mapillary is now part, got bought by Facebook, didn't it? They acquired the company a couple of years back now, but it's still going or not. Yeah, Mapillary is still going. It's it's a very important part of Meta's mapping team and, and the overall approach to open mapping. Right, but the data, but the data, the actual imagery is still is open and available, isn't it? It's not been locked down. Exactly, quite the opposite, actually. So we joined in June of 2020, and one of the great things about joining Meta is that. Uh, Mapillary, as, as an independent venture capital-backed company, needed to have a business model where we were generating revenue. As part of Meta, we don't have to worry about revenue so much anymore. It focuses on getting great map data to help us build um, all our mapping products. So where what I'm getting at is the data on Mapillary is now all open and, and free, freely available for people to use. It means that a lot more people who maybe wanted to use us in the past for commercial purposes can do so without having to worry about API fees and, and pricing. So that's been really exciting. It opens up a lot of new cases. And that's the derived data as well as the imagery. 
yeah, you can go to anywhere on Mapillary. You can zoom in and, and look at downloading all the park benches in in uh, Greenwich. Wow. Download those. Wow. So are you still doing that job at Meta uh, uh, for Mapillary or have you moved on within Meta? Because you're now the manager of, God, it's a long title, this XR Insight Maps Reality Labs. Yeah, I think that's those are some of the team names that are referenced there. I know it's right. a long, not very, um, despite it being XR Insights, it's not very insightful on the actual work. <laughs> um, yeah, so what I, what I actually do, I, I'm leading the open community mapping team at Meta. We, we are doing a lot of community management around the mapping tools that Meta has. I think Mapillary is one of those tools. We have Rapid Editor as well. Right, which is the editing tool for OpenStreetMap, originally based off ID, but now um, actually quite a distinct tool that we may or may not talk about later. And then there's Daylight Map Distribution, which is uh, is meta curating a lot of OpenStreetMap data, removing bad edits, um, and, and making it available for for others to use. Um, so those are some of the open mapping tools that we have. We come up with strategies to get more people excited about these tools, get more people uh, contributing to them, um, understand how people are using them to see how we can make them better. So it's a lot of the work that I mentioned before at Mathory, but just spread across different areas now um, and, and trying to think more about how we can make Meta's maps better using these open source tools. So I'm going to ask you a tough question now, and you can duck it if you want to, but I'm still going to ask it. Um, when you were running communities for Mapillary, Mapillary was warm and fluffy and everybody wanted to hug Mapillary because it was a lovely company doing really cool stuff. Now you're working for a big corporate that has its fans and maybe has some people who aren't so warm towards it. Has that made a big difference to you? I think there was a brief period where I did. I got some interesting emails. I'm not going to go into more detail, but I, no. I got some interesting emails in June of 2020 when we joined. But they were never from people that I worked with closely. And we, we can talk about like the uh, the principles of community management, but I see myself as part of the community. I, I volunteer a lot. I love OpenStreetMap. I love a lot of the open source tools. I put a lot of my own personal time into this. And I think that I think that helps when you join a bigger company that people maybe um, you know obviously there's mixed feelings about about Meta historically, particularly in the OSM community. But I think the people that have worked with you closely really know that you've got good intentions, and if you communicate clearly and consistently over a long period of time, people understand what it is that you're trying to do. And and I've had really positive experiences with with pretty much everyone. If if I go to a conference. I just have nothing but good experiences. So I think the the mailing lists are probably the place where it's <laughs> harder for people to communicate. As, as you and I have spoken about before, there's different language differences that can make communication harder. There's just text, even if you're talking with two native speakers in English or, or the same language, messages can still be confused because context is, is lost. So I find like having personal relationships over a long period of time, having met face-to-face -face helps. But 
um, I generally have really positive interactions in my work at Meta. Really appreciate that. I love to this day just talking to people and seeing how they're using what we build. We do have a a symptom in the open communities of we love to hate the heretic. Um, you know, and I mean, if you know, I we'll talk about open source as opposed to open data in a minute. But you know, I mean, if somebody who works in the open source community takes a job with Microsoft or with Esri or something, you know, I mean, they're immediately, it's like they've gone over to the dark side. And it's not, it's just not like that. You know, I mean, I think, you know, we like to see everything in in shades of black and white. And of course, you know, it's just one long multicolored spectrum that we all work in. And uh, so I can imagine what it was like when Mapillary became part of Facebook at the time. So is it different working with Facebook in terms of community building or is it still the same kind of stuff you're doing? I think a lot of the underlying principles remain the same. Uh, it's, it's actually funny in many ways because one of the challenges with Maplery was that we weren't dog fooding our, we weren't eating our own dog food, so to speak. So Maplery was trying to solve other people's problems, um, whether it's a local government trying to track where the traffic signs are or a cycling community trying to map out all the cycling paths. Like we, we would try to get close to that problem and understand it, but we weren't solving it for ourselves. Whereas now we're at Meta, we have this exciting difference where when we are thinking about collecting street level imagery or making rapid editor as good as it can be to improve OSM, the consequences, the consequences of us doing well or poorly will feed through to the maps that we're building that show in places like Instagram or Facebook marketplace. So we really care about trying to make these tools as useful as we can to build up our, our mapping stack. And I really like that. I like being close to the problem. I like seeing the consequences of, of what we do um, in our own work. And, and that makes it, that makes it better in many ways. I think that's how you build better products. So, You've got, I don't know, seven, eight years of experience of building communities in the OpenStreetMap, the Mapillary world. Um, if somebody else is starting out in this role, give me a couple of do's and don'ts. I alluded to some before, but I think a big one is being part of the community. So I think you genuinely need to care about the problems that you're solving. And I think what I love about the OpenStreetMap community and a lot of open source communities generally is they can sniff out pretenders, people who don't actually care, people who are there to just to maybe take some of the open source code and, and use it, but not really contribute back or take some of the open source data and not contribute back. And I think over time, they've, they've become better and better at, at sniffing that out. So I think you generally need to care I think you need to show long-term commitment, consistency. Um, that that really helps. Those are all those are all do's. You got to listen a lot. A lot of you have so much to learn. Like you mentioned, actually, a few things before, but um, you talked about the demographics in the Maplery community, for example. Like it's very different why someone might contribute in Germany on on their weekends, driving around uh, because they really like mapping. Is that passion project and they have a lot of time and money to, to do it on the weekends. I speak to 
people in Ivory Coast, for example, and they were saying like it's it's really hard for us to you know justify spending all this money on fuel to drive drive an hour away on on the weekend or even during the week. Um, like even though they really care about mapping, it's like the financial difference there is 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 they're really listening to these differences and, and trying to come up with creative ways to solve them is important. Um, and and being pragmatic. Well, I think not being ideological about things, really trying to work out what is the best way to solve this problem free of free of uh, free of ideology. So you know, open source open source is important, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean there can't be a business model around it, or there can't be a way for people to to make it sustainable in the long term by by building a company around it. So absolutely, I think those are some of the principles. And I also think, um, yeah. Having, having stumbled into open source um, and found myself running Phosphagy in Nottingham in 2013, you know, I mean, what you said about listening is so, so important. You know, um, you have to listen to the community and, and really listen, because if you don't, you're just going to make the most terrible mistakes and some of them will be irreversible. You know, you can make bad mistakes just because you haven't listened and don't understand the tone of the community. Um, yeah. And I sort of, that made me think we share a passion for open source. Um, and while you were based in Australia, you were very active in OSGO Oceana, weren't you? Yeah, and here in the United States as well. Well, in the US, OSGO in the US. Yeah, so I've, I've been involved since probably around 2017. I can talk about the origins of that, but um, I moved to the United States in January 2021 and continued with OSGO Oceania from here. So I'm kind of a remote member of the Oceania community. Right. And I think... Um... You know, of all the local chapters that we have in OSDO, and you know, it's a bit like OpenStreetMap. There's a community in many countries. The Oceana one is one that just—I don't know—it makes me smile, and it—it it just makes me think the world's a good place. You know, when when stuff's happening, because it's like you've got the big mothership of Australia within the region, and yet the outreach to the much smaller fragments of the community, particularly living in the Pacific Islands and things. It's just fantastic. You know, I mean, I, I just love what they're doing and year after year, they keep doing it. Yeah, it's been, it's been a real fun ride working with the Oceania community and the, having Australia as like the largest population and economy is, is obviously a challenge. And I think we're being very conscious of not making Australia, the dominant like grouping when we're coming together as a local chapter, and when we formed as a local chapter for OpenStreetMap in the region, that was something that they raised. It's like, how do we know that you're actually representative of all the countries involved? And to be very consultative there and make sure that we're well represented. But really, if I think about who excites me in the OpenStreetMap community right now, like Fiji is one example of of a country that's really far more organised in their map editing than Australia. Australia is a lot of like volunteers right now who are kind of just doing their own thing on weekends. Fiji has this real groundswell right now. 
Yeah, it's been it's been super cool to get involved. Um, I've been uh, you know working with the conferences as well, which has been a big part of bringing the community together. But it's funny, uh, <laughs> I've had people even saying like, "Oh, I didn't know like Oceania is actually is that a place?" Or like, <laughs> th- these are people in geospatial who didn't know Oceania is like this this continent or this regional grouping of countries. So. It is a bit of a, a strange grouping um, or a strange continent. There's small countries, big countries. They're very far apart. There's a lot of water separating us all, but it's a very collegiate environment and, and very friendly group to work with. Yeah, it's great. And um, so you've spent more time than me in the OpenStreetMap community. It's been a living. It's been your job for a long time. Um, we've both worked and volunteered in OSGEO communities. What do you see as the differences between, or, or do you see differences between those two communities? I think when I do see differences, it's probably been with OSGEO Oceania because I came into that with, I really wanted to grow the coordination of OpenStreetMap in Australia initially when I, when I got involved and, there are others that came into it with an OSGEO background that worked with QGIS, let's say, and, and they wanted to form more of a community around QGIS. And then we we ended up, like, long story short, forming OSGEO Oceania and, and, and creating a conference series around it. Um, and, and so the differences became apparent through the organization of, of those conferences. I, I think um, with the OSGEO community, it's a lot more technical usually and and there's obviously quite it's quite a large umbrella for many many different projects and so you have more professionals i would say that's one thing like more people who are getting paid to do something in that space they might be academics or professional um, geographers or cartographers or computer scientists who are applying some geospatial elements or data analysts these are the kind of people that i meet when i go to a phosphagy conference or that when I'm on the mailing list or when I'm working with, with these tools. Whereas OpenStreetMap is, I found a lot more of the people involved, at least in Oceania, have been volunteers um, or, or, or looking at it as, as kind of a, a fun side project. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair, fair distinction, you know, that there are, it's a, a passion project, OpenStreetMap, for a lot of people. And it's a fantastic project, whereas the OSGEO projects, and there are loads of them, you know, whether it's QGIS or GeoServer or whatever, um, those are all pretty much professional projects nowadays. There aren't, you know, I'm not saying there are no um, hobbyist coders, but there aren't many hobbyist coders. There may be people who work in a day job and volunteer some time in outside of their day job. But most of those people are professional software developers. They're not, um, it's not sort of a, a passion project. It's what they do because they, they love doing it. So it is different. Um, I, also, I also see a difference in the attitudes um, in the community dynamics um, particularly with re- regard to to corporates, um, you know, I think um, because most of the people in the OSGO community 
are software developers by profession. Um, they're slightly less, and I'd only say slightly less, antagonistic towards corporate involvement. Um, my experience of OpenStreetMap, um, and I'm not talking about the recent developments, we just put them to one side, we've done two or three podcasts about Overture. So apart from acknowledging that it, it, it exists, um, we're not going to talk about that today. But in the past, um, the OpenStreetMap community, I think, has been much more antagonistic towards its corporate partners. Would you agree or? Yeah, I, I would. I would. I think that characterization is 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 fair. Obviously, it varies a lot in the OpenStreetMap community. I, I mentioned that I've had a lot of good experiences, but there, I agree with there being more cooperation with corporations, or at least more appreciation of corporations within OzGeo. And I think OzGeo has had it has some really inspiring models. I think for open source communities around corporate involvement. Um, I think about, I'll speak about Oceania because it's just the region I'm, I'm more involved with, but I love some of the consultancies that have developed up there. There's developers who build some of the most popular, there's some of the most, um, uh, some of the most popular plugins for QGIS. Um, they make some of the, the really challenging um, improvements to QGIS that, that, people have requested around the world. And the good thing about the QGIS model is that if a particular government agency has this really niche thing that they need solved, they can put the money up and have a developer with those experiences build it. But then anyone else around the world can then develop, uh, can then benefit from that plugin. And I think that's a great model in the QGIS community that OSM could learn from. There are also consultants who are like really really well-versed in certain QGIS workflows for, say, the mining industry or for indigenous land rights. I'm thinking about a particular person who I know you've interviewed before on your podcast. Um, and so so those kind of uh, examples in the OSGEO space, I think something I want to see more of in OSM, of people who have these great skills, then able to turn them into into a sustainable living so yeah. that they can do what they love, which is open street map, but, but do it over a long period of time. Absolutely. And I think QGIS is almost the miracle of OSGO. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is. It, it really is. You know, I mean, I, I, I did um, a podcast with Marco um, and we talked about QGIS and I think I described it as the miracle of, of OSGO because it's just, uh, it's amazing. You know, millions of people are using this software, which has been completely developed in an open source collaborative environment. And it's not all being done by volunteers. It's largely been done by these small consultancies coming together to create a collaborative workforce. You know, there's probably a, there's probably close on a hundred full-time developers working on QGIS, I guess, you know, something of that order, you know, around and, and the world. And that's a sizable team, right? Like yeah, that, exactly. That's, yeah. It's a pretty impressive and it's balanced well because I think you could have the risk when you have all these different independent developers getting funded that the product just becomes like a hodgepodge of yeah, absolutely. A mess. But they've done a really good job of like adding new features but not 
but but still keeping a product that's that's functional and that fairly intuitive. You know, it's still a complicated product, but it's it, 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 it's easy easy to use for like people getting started. It, and it's, it's still incredibly powerful at the same. And it's also great that um, they get enough core funding. So both from end user donations and the mid-sized donations from sponsors who aren't seeking another feature or another button, but are just willing to put money into the plumbing because the danger with any software product is that you've got legacy code and all sorts of dependencies. And if you don't keep going back and fixing those things and bringing them up to date, you know, gradually the thing's going to fall apart. Um, and they've done a really good job. I mean, it's, it's so impressive. Yeah. That, ba that balance is really, really impressive. And I think the conferences are another key part of that. The, the fact that they've established this international conference series and now they're a regional conferences for phosphor G that really helps to build the brand get corporates as one example excited about it and funding funding it and, and so that's something that I've learned in my involvement with communities is just how important having these physical get-togethers are to keep the communities alive we Absolutely. noticed in Oz Geo Oceania during COVID like we still had conferences but we noticed like how much of an uphill battle it was when you're not able to come together as as one big conference across the region. Absolutely. And uh, and you make friendships and, you know, you put faces and personalities to names that you've met online. It's it's a completely different relationship. Um, and I think that's, you know, I mean, with lockdown, we all sort of, there was this big sort of surge of people thinking, oh, we're working remotely. It's fantastic. We want to carry on working remotely. And um, it may suit some people, but I, personally, I don't think it encourages creativity and the kind of relationships that you need within an organization and certainly not within a community like OSDO. Yeah? So, yeah, you need a bit of a balance between that independent time and then coming together, so... Hopefully, we're able to do both now, and, and, Indeed. Uh, and the conferences are good for that. So, just as we wrap up, um, a little bit of a, an off-topic question for you. Don't worry. Um, when you're not building communities and you're not out doing OpenStreetMap data collection, do you have any pastimes that involve Geo in one way or another? So... Yeah, good good question. So I think one that a lot of people in Osgeo Oceania seem to have is climbing. I like climbing. Right. I don't really apply geospatial to that all that much as I as I probably should. Actually one one is probably urban mobility. I find myself like thinking about urban mobility a lot. Something that I like sometimes use my geospatial knowledge for. Obviously my knowledge is less than others but that's that's something i'm really passionate about I'm, I'm really excited to see a lot of people more more in fact talking about it these days and applying their their computer science and geospatial knowledge to like understand our cities better yeah i, I would say that's that's one of the pastime like i, okay, I cycle, so cycle I, around places i'm going to give you a challenge do you have a bike scheme in san francisco you mean like a bike sharing scheme yeah, you know, like bikes that you can just pick up, um, 
Like, yeah. I don't know. I haven't um, seen one. I'm sure someone's going to correct me and tell me there is, but I have not seen one. Because the scooters, the little um, bird-type scoopers or whatever they're called, those are just dumped anywhere, aren't they? You don't have the bikes with the docking stations? No, I have not seen those. In okay. So in London, we've got this bike-sharing scheme, you know, where we've got these docking bays with bikes and you, you go and you tap it with your, the app on your phone and release the bike ride it and then drop it off at another docking station. But you have to dock the bikes. You don't leave them on the street. And um, apparently there are 780 docking stations in London. And a group of people decided that they were going to split that into three groups of 260 docking stations each. And the challenge was in a 12-hour period to cycle from one docking station to the next docking station to the next docking station, dropping the bike off and taking a new bike out and all ending up at the same central London location at the end of the day. Um, (laughs) And that involved a lot of geospatial skills, you know, to work out how to do that. And it was an amazing challenge. And I was going to suggest it to you for San Francisco, but... um, well, Maybe it won't uh, work. Yeah, I mean, I would love to, to speak to these people who solved the, the routing problems because they could help us with maybe some of our mapillary routing challenges. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think the docked biking is definitely something. It's a better strategy than the, the dockless bikes. We tried dockless bikes in Melbourne. <laughs> a lot of them ended up in the river or, you know, broken in a park somewhere. I think the docked systems are, are really great for cities. I'd love to see more of that in San so you should pay a visit to Tel Aviv because it's an incredible city for micro-mobility. You've got electric bikes, you've got regular bikes in docking stations, you've got about three different companies doing electric scooters and they just seem to end up everywhere, those electric scooters, because there are no docking stations. And, um, and they've actually got pathways through a big part of the city that are restricted to bikes and electric scooters. So um, it's a great city for trialling um, micro-mobility schemes. What do you think you do in a city like, well, pretty much the Bay Area? San Fran's a bit different, but if you think about the wider Bay Area, it's really been designed with cars in mind, like a lot of European cities. How do you think you approach urban mobility in a place like that, which is representative of a lot of the United States? Um, I'm a real, we have a ski thing in London called, well, not just London, but London's a flagship called Zipcar, um, which is, you know, you just pick up a car, you you pick up a car with an app on your phone, drive it to wherever you want to go to, and then drop it off. Um, So really very similar to the the scheme for scooters, but with little cars. Um, And potentially that's going to work a hell of a lot better than anything we've got at the moment. I mean, you can't solve, you know, if you've got distances of 20, 30, 50 miles, you can't solve all the problems with scooters or bicycles, can you? No, um, and I think that's the challenge the U.S. is, is finding right now in a lot of uh, cities. In the U.S., I mean, you know, 
in London, we've got great public transport. We moan about it, but we've got great public transport. You know, in the US, you've got next to no public transport in a lot of cities. I mean, I, I don't know whether um, in California there is public transport. I mean, it's probably an offense to to recommend public transport almost in the States. Yeah, I love the US for many things. Public transport in, in most of the cities is not one of the reasons. No, it's not one of them, you know. And, um, but I guess the pick-up and drop-off vehicles would be the one that I would see as having a future. Um, and it also... Yeah, it also yeah, I'm seeing a, sorry. Go on, you go, you go. I was just saying, I, I was, I've seen a lot of um, startups over the last you know, 10 years in that space, some of which are still, it looks like they've been struggling more in the US than in Europe. I think also, um, if you think about the, there was a big flurry of excitement about automated vehicles of, whatever an automated vehicle was going to be, um, yeah. which seems to have died down a bit as people have sort of started to realise that this might not be quite as simple as we thought it was going to be. But that all was going towards a situation, a future where nobody owned a vehicle. You just had vehicles on demand and, you know, you wanted a car to take you from your home to wherever and you'd... You'd call it on your app and it would come like an Uber um, and it would take you to where you wanted to go and then it would go and pick up the next next ride, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we might not be at the point of the automate. We might not be ready for the automated part, but the self-driving part is available now. You know, and that would that in itself would be a first step forward. Yeah, well, humans aren't great drivers. So the more we can automate ourselves away, I think the safer it will be. Um, the less, a lot, a lot, my car, for example, like I ride to work. So unless my wife's using it during the week, it, it's just sitting at home. I, I would love a system that enabled that car to be on the road serving other people. Maybe we didn't even need to own the car in the first place and we just call the car when we need. That, that would be a much better system. Uh, two of my kids moved to a part of London where there's no residence parking. Um, and so they both had to sell their cars. And they did that. They sold their cars. And you know, two, three years later, you know, they're completely now settled into using um, using the alternatives to car ownership. And it hasn't restricted them at all in any regard. In fact, I don't think either of them would go back to owning a car. I guess and that's you, in London. That's in London, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess transport for London is world famous. Uh, so probably easier than in in London than some other places. Like when you want to go further afield, if they wanted to go to the Great Lakes, for example. Um, sorry, not the Great Lakes, the Lakes District. Right. How would they get there? What would you recommend? Is it, can you get there with public transport? You could. You could, but you wouldn't. Um, you'd either hire a car or you'd phone your father and say, Dad, can I borrow your car? <laughs> <laughs> um, which one of them did recently. You know, they were going somewhere and they just phoned up and said, can I use your car for the weekend? And that's fine. Nice. You know? I mean, yeah, but even that is still better than, you know, I mean, 
I think you know we've got a lot of challenges on medium long journeys. You know, if you're going city to city, you just go by train, obviously. But if you're not going city to city, um, we need a system that enables you to do the long haul on a train and then do the last twenty or thirty miles in some other way. And we're not we're not there yet, but um, it's probably not going to be scooters or bicycles. Um, I was just thinking, Eduardo of San Francisco. Um, I mean, that's not a bicycle city anyway, is it really, with those hills, you know? People do it. But yeah, I ride my bike in a very flat part of the bay. But walking those San Francisco hills is hard enough. And how yeah. people do it on their bike. Some of them are riding fixies with like no gears. It's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I remember, I mean, there's that tram thing that goes up you know that's a chain driven tram or something i can't remember what it is but i mean some of those hills are really seriously steep yeah they're, they're crazy steep so it makes it makes getting around more difficult for sure i think the lime scooters are probably challenged there because they're, they're using a lot more battery going up bicycles are, are less practical for some parts of the city so the bus system becomes more important in that case. San Fran actually does pretty well with buses. It's, it's just when you get further outside the city limits to connect with like the South Bay, for example, where public transport starts to fall down. And we've just rambled on for the last 10 minutes from geospatial into mobility, which is what happens to us people, you know. So, uh, listen, it's been great talking to you. Um, Eduardo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. To Eduardo's bosses at Meta, in case they hear this, he didn't say anything bad about the company. He was a great interviewee. And thank you to your bosses for letting you come on the podcast because I know it took us a little while to actually get through the, the bureaucracy. Um, it's been great fun talking to you. And thanks and good night. Thanks for your patience, Stephen. Thanks for giving such a great cross-section of our industry. Everyone enjoys it and appreciate your time. Take care. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can also follow us on Twitter where our handle is Geomob. Thanks again for listening and hope to see you at a Geomob event soon. Mm-hmm.